have to learn your cliches. You're gonna have to study them. You're gonna have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you want to play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, and this is a team effort. 10-5, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just got to play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. All right! Play ball. Hiya, movie buddies, and thanks a whole lot for downloading episode numero 10. Number 10. Shit, that. number 10 of Scoring at the Movies, the usually every other Thursday podcast that natters on about sports pictures that we kind of like. If you don't like spoiler action, then flee. I'm the unremarkable bowler with terrible hair and low self-esteem, Ryan Ellis, and here's the combed-over showboat who pours sugar in gas tanks, Christy Gregorio. Thank you, Ryan. I consider myself the 710 split of podcast co-hosts, and as somebody who is a big bowling aficionado on the side... I appreciate you having me on for this one. I'm sure two guys that average 260, 270. Uh, when we bowl 15 frames. When we bowl 15 frames and combined, right? I'm not talking individually <laughs> here then. I'm an okay yeah. bowler. I'm not great. I've got a few turkeys in my day. A few turkeys. Oh, nice. Three in a row. Yeah, three in a row, but only with the bumpers in place, right? No. Stop disparaging my ability <laughs> with the bowling ball in my hand. <laughs> That was a quick turnaround. <laughs> By the way, I like the way you, you thank me for having you over as if you're new to the podcast. <laughs> it's been you every time. It's not like it's a revolving door. Yeah, but every time you ask me to come back to record another one, it's a surprise to oh, me. So it's, it's a compliment. <laughs> you haven't kicked me out yet and replaced me with another friend. With Fox. Unceremoniously booted to the That curb. might yet happen. Who knows? Yeah. This is the first podcast that Chris and I are recording in the new place, and we've heard the audio, the way it sounds down here, when Bev and I recorded It Follows... What a nice change. It's yeah. a recording studio down here. Luxurious Ellis Studios. The small confines, which are too low for this poor man. He's six foot four, and the ceilings are six foot even. The cozy confines, you right. might say. And we're now in our every other week rotation again, by the way. We had an extra week off because Bev and I moved. I need the time to not have to worry about podcasts. That's why It Follows was also a week late, as it turned out. So now our rabid fan base won't be jonesing <laughs> for their bi-weekly hit of inane sports Where were they? conversation. Where were they? By the way, I have no runs, hits, and errors from Major League. Because we're that damn good, right? did it right for once. Or I just forgot to take them down when I was editing <laughs> the podcast and make notes. <laughs> so it, it was just so grievously flawed that we didn't have the time <laughs> to go through all the errors. It would just be an entire podcast unto itself. So Kingpin was released by MGM and United Artists, which are studios that pretty much don't exist the same way anymore. They were the big powerhouses for so long, ironically. On July 26, 1996, it was not a success, certainly not the hit that Dumb and Dumber had been, or that There's Something About Mary would be two years later for the Fairley Brothers. The movie did do pretty well on home video, though. I was reading that part of the problem was it got released in, what I say, July, and the Olympics were an issue with that. People weren't going to the movies, I guess. That was also the Atlanta Olympics, so... Yeah, all right. Maybe an excuse. It's an excuse, but I thought this was a pretty mediocre movie from start to finish. But I did laugh. I did too, but I think I laughed not so much because the movie was good, not so much because of the writing, but because of the performances and the actors involved. Fair. Vanessa Angel, it goes without saying, is a comedic genius. No, of course not her, but the other actors I thought were great. This came after Dumb and Dumber though, right? Hmm. I know it preceded. It was every two years. Dumb and Dumber was 94. This was 96. Something about Mary was 98. Don't get me wrong. It's not a bad movie. And I did laugh at times. I love Bill Murray. Mm -hmm. We talked about it before. I think Woody Harrelson's great. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just the mediocre cream filling in the Oreo cookie of two great movies. Did you get tired of all the montages? There's got to be five or six. So many montages, but it's very 90s, right? 
the reason I asked about Dumb and Dumber, whether it preceded or came after, is because I don't have your encyclopedic knowledge of movie release dates, obviously. But one thing I did notice is that this movie is canonically part of the Dumb and Dumber-verse. Skidmark, who mm-hmm. shows up through this movie, is... Roger Clemens. Roger Clemens is related to Seabass from Dumb and Dumber. Cam Neely. Yeah, they both dress the same, and they are fairly brothers have confirmed this. They're supposed to be related. Mm-hmm. So they dress the same. They're both legendary Boston athletes who both played for Boston at this era. 96 was Clemens last year. Right, he went to the Blue Jays the next year. And went back-to-back Cy Young's, mm-hmm. 97-98. Yep. So yeah, canonically part of the Dumb and Dumberverse. The mediocre part of it, but still connected. Watching these finely tuned athletes, as Randy Quaid remarked at one point during this movie, right? It's intimidating to be in the presence of all these great athletes. <laughs> who are fatter than me. <laughs> and swilling beer and eating hot dogs. My goal now is to try a different craft beer during the recording of every one of our podcasts going forward. Have you had multiple ones in the past? Have you had four or five in our now ten episodes? Or can you not even remember? I can't remember now, Ryan. Your diary is not Yeah, I haven't kept that close diary. But going forward, from episode ten onward, I'm going to keep a log of the beers and movies to which they're associated. Fair enough. Today will be Coriolis Effect. Nice. By the way, the athlete thing I want to mention on top of what you said is that Brett Favre is the other big name, and he has a pretty major role, in fact, in There's Something About Mary, because his name is mentioned constantly, and that's one of the best gags in that movie. I wasn't the biggest fan of that movie the first time I saw it. I thought the gross-out gags were a little too much. There's a lot of them in this one, too, a lot of gross-out gags. The beans above the frank didn't work out well for you? I was okay, but there's a lot of other things. The come in the hair thing, I didn't dislike it, but everyone else thought that was hilarious, and I was never the hugest fan of that, and some of the stuff with Magda. But yeah. Brett being mentioned through the whole movie, and at the end you realize it's Brett <laughs> Favre. <laughs> that was a great payoff that I did not see coming at all. That is a good payoff. And you're right, there are some gross-out gags in this, and those are the ones that fell flat for me. You mentioned this movie bombed. Well, it didn't bomb, I guess. I don't think it broke even. Well, let me say office. the numbers here since we're talking about that part. Right. So it was 65th in 1996 at the U.S. box office, $25 million, which is $52 million adjusted, which is still not that good. Independence Day was, of course, the big hit, and Randy Quaid was in that the same yeah. year. Big year for the Queedster. And it had 50% of critics from Rotten Tomatoes on that side, only half of them, and 69% of audiences. So actually, the audiences liked it a lot more. But speaking of critics, Gene Siskel of Siskel and Ebert had it ninth on his top ten, and I was looking. They dedicated, me, myself, and Irene, the Fairleys did, to Gene Siskel because he had died only the year before. He talked about this movie so much. I think Ebert liked it, too. That's a movie I remember liking more than most people, actually. It was me, me, myself, and I mean, yeah. I mean, No, I mean that those two guys, Cicely and Ebert, like this movie, Kingpin. No, no, I know. So, I, okay. I'm just total non sequitur, okay. just off the cuff for no good reason. One of the many fairly failures. <laughs> fairly failures, <folks>. Fairly failures. <laughs> Though, ironically, because after Something About Mary, they haven't really had any kind of big hit or a movie that's beloved the way that that was, the way Dumb and Dumber was. As we said, Kingpin wasn't really either. But still, now that history's been kind to it, I would say that's a pretty good threesome right in a row. And I own all three of them. But I don't own the rest of their movies. Not that they're terrible, but they're not as good as these three. I might agree with that. The only possible exception to that is I haven't seen it in enough time. But I might rank me, myself, and Ari Green above Kingpin. Really? I've only seen that once. So maybe we should get that another try. Because Jim Carrey who can be brilliant. And of course, he was the star of Dumb and Dumber for them, and he was back with them in that. And I don't remember thinking he was great, but I bet he was, because I saw Liar Liar again recently. I didn't laugh that much, but I marveled at how talented that motherfucker is. He's almost like Randy Quaid, in that Randy Quaid, when I see some of his older stuff, and of course, famous for being Cousin Eddie and... Vacation. Christmas Vacation, right? And that's a... Well, both Vacations, the first one and Christmas Vacation, actually. Right, but for me, Christmas Vacation is the pinnacle of that character. Okay, Uh, yeah, more screen time for one thing. More screen time. 
And, and he's the savior at the end. He brings the boss in and saves the day yeah. and makes the boss give Through, Clark his bonus. Yes, by illegally kidnapping somebody. <laughs> I mean, he's great in Independence Day in the role that he's asked to play. And I thought, frankly, he was really, really good in this movie. Mm-hmm. But a guy that really fell off the rails and famously kind of went like, woo! He's a little like, nuts now, yeah. Jim Carrey didn't go to the same degree, but a guy that is unquestionably massively talented and then in recent years really started to develop some unusual and espouse some unusual beliefs. I think he has a new series launching now. Bev and I are watching. It's called Kidding. Kidding, yeah. Which is not that funny, but it's him and Michelle Gondry. And we're only watching because he was on Real Time with Bill Maher promoting it. And we watch Real Time all the time. So we thought, let's give this a try. Gondry and Carey produced my favorite movie of the 2000s, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Gondry's not directing, if at all, then not often. He's involved in that show, though. Yeah. So we had to at least check out Kidding. Yeah, fair enough. And it's not hilarious, but it's enjoyable enough. And he does play a weirdo in that. But yeah, Carrie and Quaid are talented people, and maybe that's part of what it comes down to. I've said this before in other podcasts with Bev. If you're an actor, even if you're Tom Hanks, who we all love so much, and seems like a normal dude, seems like he could fit in if he came into our basement right now, but there's probably something wrong with you, and I don't mean that as an insult. I mean that as a compliment. You have to have a bit of a screw loose to be an actor, to be somebody else for so much of your life. Yeah. And maybe Quaid and Carrie can't control demons. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's true of a lot of comics right comedians yeah maybe more so like a Robin Williams the funniest people often have a lot of mental health issues Mm -hmm. a lot of personal demons but maybe it's just something linked to creativity and what you need to be a great actor I mean look at what happened to Joaquin Phoenix whether it was staged or not I don't know but obviously a great actor and kind of went off the rails that was staged that was all to promote that documentary that made 40 bucks (laughs) (laughs) and that was almost as much as Kingpin then yeah that was the movie where Casey Affleck was taking advantage of women, and that's why he's in trouble. He maybe did it in other situations, but it was that movie specifically, that documentary with Joaquin Phoenix, where he was going into bed with girls and women, I should say, mm. unwanted. And I don't think he actually did anything that was terrible, but it was bad enough. He didn't rape anybody, but it was bad enough. By the way, I didn't do the nutshell on Kingpin. Prophylactic pitchman hands over princely sum to incredibly gullible hayseeds. The end <laughs> of the movie. Bye, Roy. Bye, whore. Question for you. What did you think of the portrayal of the Amish in this? Leaving aside the Randy Quaid character... It ain't witness! <laughs> Whoa. You're taking a real controversial stance on this one now, Ryan. You're saying <laughs> this movie does not portray the Amish as accurately or as sensitively as witness? The other Peter, Peter Weir, <laughs> did a much better job than Peter and Bobby Fairley did in this. No, of course they play it up for comedy, but if you take Ishmael out of the discussion, whether he's naive or slow or what... Whatever he is, I don't think that's necessarily directly linked to his Amish beliefs. They seem normal enough then, yeah. I thought so too. And the butt of the joke most of the time in those scenes is Woody Harrelson, Roy. Yeah, he can't wrap his head around the basic fundamental skills of running a farm that everyone else just takes for granted. He's asked to do something very basic and can't hack it. Milking a bull. Ugh. That was funny, but that was disgusting. <laughs> it was disgusting, but it's still one of the great deliveries. I hope you don't mind. I took the liberty of milking your cow. We don't have a cow. We have a bull. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great because of the Harrelson line that it took a little while to get him warmed up, but <laughs> and then he's carrying the full bucket. It just right? came out like a geyser or something. What this movie did do, I thought, fairly well was a little bit of throwaway sound effects or throwaway visual gags mm-hmm. in the background sometimes. And this is one of those scenes where the action in the front of the scene is Harrelson drinking the apparently bucket full of bull semen. Mm -hmm. But as soon as that punchline is paid off with the father of Ishmael saying, we don't have a cow, we have a bull. The Harrelson reaction of disgust before he's, I'm going to brush my teeth in the background. You hear a bull bleeding or what does a bull do? He doesn't move. 
Anyway, well, you, it makes a noise. I didn't pick you up. You didn't on pick that. up on that. It's the bull clearly celebrating what just happened like to lighting him. a cigarette. Sort of yeah, thing. yeah. Well, I thought you were leading into the flip side of the bad thing that happens. That's pretty much a good thing that happens to the bull. But when oh, Roy cuts butter, off Buttercup. Buttercup's feet, yeah, <laughs> that's entirely sound. I remember that gag again. The throwaway line from the father saying brother Hezekiah or whatever name Roy was using at that time take the shoes off the horse we'll Mm -hmm. be right back as he pulls Ishmael aside watching it now as an adult watching him walk out with the four feet of the horse made me grossly uncomfortable the horse should have bled to death Leaving aside the reality of the situation, yeah, I mean, it's a ridiculous joke, and it just made me uncomfortable. It's paid off at the end, though, where the horse is about four feet shorter. Yeah. Even though he only cut off about a foot of the Well, because you you wonder when the horse is introduced. Roy walks into the barn, and Ishmael says, this is Buttercup, the biggest, strongest horse in the county. And you're like, okay, that's great, who cares? And then, half an hour later in the movie, when the two Amish characters are just nonchalantly walking through the barn, talking to each other, don't comment on anything, but of course, in the background, there's Buttercup, all of a sudden, the shortest horse in the county, (laughs) which is another cute throwaway visual gag that they don't mm. comment on and you're just left to yourself. I the Fairleys are good at that. And those kinds of gags in this movie were some of the things that worked the best for me. I don't think the writing was that great, but the actors really pulled it out of the The fire two for them. guys who wrote, what are their names here? Barry Finero and Mort Nathan are veterans of Golden Girls. I have nothing as Golden Girls, but it is a TV series, so it's not like they're Ryan, William Goldman or something like that who wrote this screenplay. Let me say thank you for being a friend. Traveled, what's the hell? Travel down the world and back, back again. again? Yeah. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. Is it pal or friend? We messed it up. Fuck. Yeah. Something like that. That's a good shot. For something that we didn't talk about at all in advance, I think we, we did, did pretty okay. well. Yeah, for a song I've only heard a few times in my life. Never really watched that show. Seemed like it was okay. I think we can all agree that I would be the Sophia of our friend group, right? I'll be B. Arthur. What's her name again? Dorothy? Dorothy. Dorothy. All right, back to the beginning of Kingpin, where you meet young Roy, not the boy version, but the, whatever, 20-year-old version. Disco Inferno's playing, 1979 is the time frame. I do like when they do stuff like this, by the way, at the end of a decade, and then something big changes in that character's life, because, of course, he gets his hand cut off at that time. He's in Ocelot, Iowa, that's where he's from, and he is a lot like Big Earn in a lot of ways. He would have been Big Earn, this cocky asshole who was great at bowling, who had bowling groupies, for Christ's sake. Ends up with a bowling groupie, as it turns out, for that matter. Vanessa Angel's character is a bowling groupie. She's with Stanley, and then she's with Roy. (laughs) The the old stereotype of bowling groupies. That plague of the PBA. (laughs) Well, we covered Color of Money a few months ago, which, of course, was pool hustlers. Now you got bowling hustlers. Yeah. You don't really see that a lot in movies. There aren't a lot of bowling movies, period, we can even cover. So, If you're good enough at a thing, especially in small towns, there's probably an opportunity to hustle somewhere, right? I enjoyed that opening scene a lot as well. You watch young, cocky Roy strut into the bowler alley. Burn, baby, burn, burn. Grabbing food out of people's hands and eating himself, <laughs> and they all cheer him on as he does it. Cause he's like such a big earn would do yeah, later on. He's such a big star. Throws a strike, does the splits on the floor. Mm-hmm. And all of that is great because it's paid off at the end of the movie down the line. Right? Mm-hmm. The foreshadowing of it is what makes it such a good gag. After he loses his hand to the angry hustlers, and by the way, I really hate that. If you bet on something and the other person's smarter than you and does the whole sort of, I don't know how to play this game. Okay, here's a lot of money. I'm really good at this game. That's your own fucking problem, you crybaby that lost. Stop getting hustled by people. (laughs) I think you might be giving the criminal elements of the bowling world a little bit too much credit and self-awareness there, Ryan. I gotta tell you. Well, maybe it's only a movie thing, but you see this a lot where people get so upset and they're going to beat somebody up. It happens in The Hustler, the Paul Newman movie that led into Color of Money, where he has his thumbs broken by guys who are pissed 
that he pretends to not be good at the game, then he gets a lot of money, and you know, the hustling thing. And it just pisses me off sometimes, especially in a movie like this. I was actually kind of annoyed by these people ruining this guy's life because he took a little bit of money from them. <laughs> Fuck you! You bet the money! It's your own damn problem. I like that you're watching this stupid comedy... And you're developing moral outrage at the, I was angry <laughs> at these hustlers. But you're also burying the lead a little bit. How does he lose his hand? Because he beats Big Earn in the state championship or whatever it is, right? And then Big Earn decides that he's gonna get revenge on him by A filling his gas tank with sugar so that Roy gets stranded and has to blow all of his winnings not to repair the car. Roy is a bit of like a rube at this point, so Big Earn takes him He's Woody Boyd, basically. He's so he naive early on. And incidentally, do you remember that Woody, at one point in Cheers, mentions that he's a former bowling champion yep. himself? But he quit because he crippled somebody. Yeah. And now he's the cripple. <laughs> now he's the cripple. See, it all comes full circle. Yeah. But of course, Big Earn takes young Roy. The name isn't Boy, it's Roy. <laughs> and he takes him under his wing. He's going to teach him a hustle so he can make some money on the side. And of course, he hangs Roy out to dry by setting him up in this way. And that scene, for all your moral outrage... Is still one of the funnier scenes to me in the movie. Oh, it's funny. But With it's just... the priests? I mean, come on. The father, what do you Okay, doing? two vices. <laughs> well, he's actually showing at least three. Yeah, bowling for money is my only vice, and then he orders the double of whatever the hell it was. And he pats the woman on the he ass. Pats <laughs> so you have at least three vices, and probably about seven or eight. And then takes his collar off in the parking lot before mm. they beat the shit out of Woody. That's actually a horrifying scene. No, no, what are you doing? And you realize what's about to happen. Funny cut to the wood chipper playing off. He obviously lost his hand, but just like Fargo, actually, that's a disgusting scene that's actually funny, too, because it's Steve Buscemi's leg. That's the only thing that's left of him. That's why it's funny, but it's it's also grisly and horrifying when you think about it. And it really makes you question, could you do that in a ball shining machine? Could you take somebody's hand off? Or would it be something more akin to The Simpsons when Milhouse gets his head stuck in the shino ballo and comes out <laughs> looking all glistening? Homer like, does that. Oh, Homer does it, right? Not Milhouse. Damn it. <laughs> fucked up my own anecdote. <laughs> but you're right. <laughs> it does makes you think maybe it would just stop working after a while because it would take a lot to... Well, maybe the hand was mangled so badly it just made sense to take it right, right. off. Ocelot surgeons didn't know better. <laughs> Ocelot general did not have the medical staff able Let's to... Let's just cut it off. It's like 1900s around here. But then when Roy meets Ishmael, he hears him before he sees him. He hears that great strike of the balls on the pins. Just like Eddie hears Vincent before he ever sees him in Color of Money. It is a very similar scene. They're staring away from the action and their head just slowly lifts up as they hear the smash of the ball and the pins. The difference is, Eddie is a man that knows the game. He knows how to hustle. He mm -hmm. knows his own ability to train somebody in the hustle. And Roy's a dumbass. Roy's a dumbass. Not so naive, though. He has learned about life and the world in the well, 20 or so years. or 17. Whatever, 17. Yeah, because yeah. it's set in 96 yeah. and 79. He's had his head buried in the bottle for 17 years. Right. So he's not quite the savvy hustler that Big Earn... Oh, by the way, what was the line that... I was trying to remember it, and I couldn't. What was the line that Big Earn used when he was hustling with Roy? Something to the effect of, yeah, that'll happen when I lose my hair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of thing. This is a movie filled with bad hair. Randy Quaid, Woody Harrelson, uh, and Bill Murray all have terrible hair. In reality, I guess they all do too, but in the movie yeah. they have really bad hair. Contrast to this beautiful Vanessa Angel, Claudia's hair, and everything else about her. <laughs> <laughs> she would not end up with Roy, by the way. They have a vicious fight in this scene, which doesn't age very well in the modern era, but at least she kicks his ass. Maybe that's why it was okay then. He's punching her fake tits and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of things about this movie that date it, that make it very 90s contemporaneous to like naked gun style humor and that is one of those scenes where they are having a vicious brawl in the parking lot 
And you're right, he's treating her breasts like speed bags mm. almost, right? And Which would be an airplane yeah, kind of gag, yeah. And that's exactly the kind of humor that Naked Gun brought back to the forefront in the early 90s, right? Mm. That kind of really slapsticky stuff. It's really weird and uncomfortable to watch now, I think. Because he's hitting her. <laughs> yeah, he's... I won't stoop to hit a girl, and then seconds later he's hitting a girl. Contrasting Talladega Nights, which is also a silly, stupid sports movie, and how the humor slapsticky humor of the what mid 2000s the mid to late 2000s. 2006 so 10 years after this yeah how that holds up versus the slapsticky humor of 1996 and i'd say there's a startling contrast in how the two things have aged now granted one is 20 years old and one is only 10 but i put a wager down that at 20 years old talladega nights will still hold up better than kingpin at 20 years old by the way you give me grief on my math sometimes that's 22 and 12 Round numbers, okay, Ryan. Fine. Round numbers. Just like Ishmael. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I bowl 265 in 15 frames. <laughs> now, his storyline, of course, is having to save the farm. And I think you find that out in the scene where Roy is cutting off Buttercup's feet. Because Roy's in the background. Right. And they're talking about it. We got to save the farm. Yep. That's a cliche, saving the farm. And in the end, Roy gives the money over. And, of course, they do. Very convenient that Trojan offered Roy exactly half yeah. a million dollars in sponsorship money conveniently exactly the same amount of money that the farm needed to be saved. This is only getting split one way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Roy turns out to be a good dude after all. And they're going to Reno for a big bowling tournament. I love that you start in Iowa and you end up in Reno. It is Nevada, but it's not Las Vegas. Not that Reno is a terrible place to go, but it would be a cliche and maybe a smart one to go to a big place like Las Vegas, but it is a bowling tournament too. You mentioned going from Iowa to Reno. I love the fact that they made Roy... I think he's an amateur bowling champ, right, of 1979? I don't think... State, though. It's some kind of state. Because that's a running gag, too. The ring and the hand. And at one point, somebody actually comments on the hand, and most of the time they're commenting on... <laughs> yeah, well, he owes dues at one point. Retroactive. <laughs> that's a good gag. I, will you hold on to this for me until after the tournament? What do we want a rubber hand for? No, the ring! The <laughs> ring! Oh, okay. But the best part of that gag, though, is the arrears is something like 48 bucks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, so, that's it. I guess we got to go. <laughs> yeah, that's a Simpsons double joke. A, it's funny, and then it's funny again. Your dues are in arrears since 1979, and, uh, oh, how much is that going to be? And she spends a minute and a half calculating <laughs> it, you know, interest, penalties, $38. And, yeah, you're right. Randy Quaid immediately throws up his arms <laughs> in the air. Well, that's it for us. I guess we're out of here. They make him the state champ of Iowa. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like saying you're the state champ of North Dakota. There's probably all of how many bowlers in the state in 1979. Like, I don't even think there's a million well, perhaps now in Iowa. Ray from Field of Dreams is a bowler. Ray Kinsella. When he's not playing baseball with his dead father. <laughs> wow. He's in Iowa. That is a weird connection to And me. Iowa is heaven, according to that movie. Okay. We'll probably cover Field of Dreams next year. Maybe when the baseball season's going to get going, we'll be weeping throughout the podcast, or at least I will. Yeah, me too. I'm a soft touch. So this is also a road movie, and on the way they meet Stanley, of course, who is Rob Moran. He's a veteran of Fairly Flicks. He was in Dumb and Dumber and Something About Mary. He has got a marvelous games room, because not only is there the bowling alley, but he's got foosball and the pool table, and then that awesome cooler that's such a shows huge off angels. cooler <laughs> that is just full of dry ice or something, because it steams like something out of Alien every time you open yeah, it up. Great gag when Randy Quaid has the nipples. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have two jugs, two mugs, no, a bottle of beer. Don't trouble yourself, miss. I'll get it. And speaking of beer, along the way, of course, Ishmael is corrupted by doing drugs and drinking and everything. And they are obviously going for cheap gags. They're right down to him not wanting to drink beer or something in the car. The sight gag of him pulling up a big bong. (laughs) He gets corrupted a little bit too easily. (laughs) He's supposed to be the simpleton from the get-go, right? And I thought the discussions between him and Roy on the road about those very things were pretty good. 
they keep alternating with Ishmael because sometimes he is the naive simpleton who doesn't know a, a damn thing about the world. And Roy is supposed to be the, the quote-unquote sage, wise, mentor character. But then Ishmael will actually say something remarkably accurate and intelligent. And Refusing coffee and then when, he, or the then when Roy pushes right? him, it's so cigarettes too. You, but you want a cigarette? They say it's bad for you, it shortens your lifespan, blah, 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 blah. And Roy's immediate response was, oh, that's ridiculous. Why would they say that? Why would these cigarette companies lie? They want you to buy cigarettes. You can't do that if you're dead. And, and then there's Ishmael's naivete. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Here, give me a cigarette. Right. And then, then knowing about coffee, uh, was it double cream, one sugar, something oh, like that? that. Was, but that was a great delivery on Randy Quaid's part, right? Do you want a coffee? No, it's a stimulant. What do you think that cigarette is? That's a stimulant. It is? Oh, in that case, yeah, I'll have a large double cream, double sugar, a lot of cream. <laughs> and it's funny, but he wouldn't know those things. I don't know anything about what goes in, well, I know what goes in coffee, but... But that's the gag. I don't drink it, so I know. That's the yeah. gag. He's never had coffee in his life, but he knows exactly the order, the very specific order. Being too hard on this movie, I guess, for that reason. I liked it more than you did, by the way. Sounds like yeah, why am I the one defending all this? So far, it's been all me defending it. Sounds it's like you're a thumbs down. But I was actually a mild thumbs up because I did laugh. I did enjoy myself. As we're talking through it, I might have to reevaluate my criteria of it because the more we're talking about it, the more scenes I realized that there was. Because I didn't find myself laughing out loud very much in this movie. That's why I was kind of. Okay, yeah, I wasn't really necessarily LOLing either, but I was definitely grinning and enjoying myself. And I think most of the scenes that I did actually chuckle to myself involved Bill Murray, probably right. just doing Bill Murray's impromptu, whatever the hell he felt like and doing. And he's obviously right? not the leader of the movie, but he's in it quite a bit. I didn't remember how much he really is in this movie. You see him quite a bit in the beginning For the last, when he corrupts yeah. Roy. And then, of course, in the tournament at the end, he's in quite a lot of that. Right down to nearly getting punched. Never punch a guy with your bowling hand. We learned that from Bull Durham. <laughs> Don't punch a guy with your pigeon hand. <laughs> And of course, again, I'm being hard on this because it's just going for comedy, but there's no way that guy could ever bowl. Roy could never, ever bowl with a fucking fake hand. Hold on, Ryan. Are you saying that when Roy throws a ball down the alley with the hand still attached <laughs> and it managed not only to successfully roll down to the pins, which I question it would be able to do that at all, mm -hmm. but then make a strike and make it back through the feeder system so it pops out at the benches again. You got a Phillips head screwdriver? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good line. There's a lot of really stupid gags. And that one really fell flat for me, actually. I remember loving that as a kid, or as a teenager, anyway. Maybe because it is so stupid. The high five at one point when the hand goes flying off and then the guy gets the hand <laughs> off the girl's boob. That's kind of funny. I like that one well enough. And that one's really funny, not only because landing square on the, the boob of the... And she doesn't notice somehow. She doesn't notice. <laughs> but the fact that he carefully, gingerly takes his hand off her breast and then replaces it with the hand of the boyfriend that the girl's making out with and then sort of smiles and nods to himself like, good. You did a good job. He's a right? love connector. <laughs> He's a love connector. That's what made that so good. A big part of the movie is that bowling tournament, which actually gets somewhat serious. It is actually a sports movie in a way, and a sports ending. The last tournament at the end? The real yeah, one? Yeah, the million-dollar tournament? Is that a thing? I thought PBA tournaments were peaky-yoon, like really small. Oh, I don't know. I suppose it's just jazzed up for the movie. It's, I don't know. But apparently Bill Murray did bowl three strikes in a row when we see him, and I guess Woody was a terrible bowler. I knew Bill Murray was a good bowler. He's also a good golfer. Mm -hmm. I knew that Woody was apparently a terrible bowler. But he's a good basketball player in White Man Can't Jump. I was going to say, it was like the reverse of White Man Can't Jump, right? Mm -hmm. This is the one where Woody's the bad athlete and his co-star is actually good at it. So when there were strikes with Woody, I think Woody did throw one strike you can see on camera, which again was probably legit, but it wasn't often because he couldn't do it. His stroke is bad. Bill Murray's stroke is weird, and I think intentionally so, right? The commentators mentioned about his arm flying up to the side and all mm -hmm. that. But you can tell he actually knows how to bowl the game. And his reactions look so genuine, like you said, probably because they are, during the scene where he has to throw three strikes in a row mm -hmm. to win the tournament. 
he's watching the last 10 pin wobble and then fall down and legitimately throws his arms out in front of actual extras playing this crowd too who have to cheer so he would have been jazzed up we talked about that in major league dennis haysbert talked about how jazzed he was to be playing this fake game in front of people who got him all jazzed up as if it was a real baseball game well same thing here probably for murray i'm actually bowling strikes and i need to for the movie but then these people are cheering me on so i'm even more Hepped up. I love the swagger that Murray has in this Big Urn character. As his hair just completely unravels. <laughs> <laughs> it's very Trump-esque, and it's, it's oh, swooping yes. across, except, like you said, it becomes unraveled and just starts going out at all mm-hmm. angles, like tentacles and stuff. His turn around and listen move, mm-hmm. and the swagger he brings is hilarious. I thought that both Steve Reich and also ball stroking, like you're holding the ball, but you use the other hand, I guess it would be your left hand to stroke the ball, was from this movie. Steve Reich is from Married with Children. Al Bundy would say that. So whenever I've bowled, I've at least thought it if I didn't say it. I definitely do the ball stroking thing. And I thought I was bigger in the desert, but it must be Al Bundy. Because I don't see him ever caress the ball. He does lick it once. Well, he does. He right? Co- or is that? No, that's Jesus, the bowler in Big Lebowski. That's Big Lebowski. Yeah, you, okay. don't, you don't fuck with Jesus. When he brings out the ball with the rose in the mm-hmm. center that all the commentators are asking, you ever seen a ball like that before? He does kind of give it that loving stroke as he picks it up. But other than that, I don't think he does. I think you're right. So it's Al Bundy. And that last tournament, like I said, at the beginning of the movie when Roy Munson walks out. Now, incidentally, we haven't talked about this, but one of the great running gags and sort of motivations, I guess, for Roy's character is his name, right? Munson, to get Munson. Yes, yeah. He's lived with his head in the bottle so long that he doesn't pay much attention to things anymore. But as he's out on the road and people are talking to him, and they mention Ishmael, in fact, is the first one to mention I feel like I got Munsoned. You have the world in your hands and you just fuck it all up. The thought that his name was synonymous with that kind of laughable failure is what drove him to actually, A, go after Ishmael and try to make him the surrogate champion that Roy never really proved to be. And then ultimately what drove him to try to bowl himself with the rubber hand at the end of the movie, which I thought was an interesting little screenwriting gimmick. But that callback to the beginning of the movie where Roy comes in in the 70s and he's all swagger and everyone loves him, so he's taking food out of everyone's hands. And he shows up to this tournament after Ishmael breaks his hand, has to bowl himself. And, of course, Disco Inferno starts playing. He walks through the door of the Reno Bowlerama with his bell-bottom pants on, struts up to some guy, takes the pizza out of his hand, takes one bite, and the dude walks up to him and says, What the hell are you doing? Give that back. (laughs) And all of a sudden the music stops playing. That's not the 70s anymore, It's not the 70s anymore. You're not big shit anymore, Roy. And like a lot of great sports movies, not all of them, because sometimes the sports team we love wins. But in this case, the hero loses the big game, but he wins something bigger. Helping out his buddy indirectly. We'll get to that in a second. But of course, he wins the girl illogically. He becomes the rubber man. Rubber man. Rubber man. (laughs) That is a good payoff. You talked about in Tin Cup about how even finishing second or probably third, but definitely second in a major tournament in golf can get you so much money in endorsements. And certainly winning even one tournament can get you so much money in endorsements. Well, same thing here because Big Earn won a lot of money, but the guy who finished second got a ton of money from, what was it, Trojan? Yeah, Trojan Condoms sponsored him as the rubber man. All he has to do is some commercial spots and stuff. But yeah, in this case, it was a million-dollar winner-take-all tournament. Second place and onward would have gotten nothing, as far as the prize money goes. I kind of liked the way that wrapped up. I mean, it would have been a silly conclusion to have Roy suddenly come out of nowhere after 17 years bowling with a rubber hand and winning the tournament. It's silly enough for him to finish second, but it provides the rationale for him getting some money at the end of it. But it's nice that Big Earn, who you're meant to absolutely hate at this point, right? Because he's such a tool. He doesn't get a comeuppance. He wins. He gets a million dollars. Oh, no. Maybe he does, because Stanley and his guy are going after him. 
Yeah, I get that you're meant to think because Vanessa Angel sets them up with the mm-hmm. phone calls that Stanley and his goons are meant to go after him. But realistically, this is a bit of like a putsy-looking rich boy and his equally putsy-looking goon going after him. I'm not terribly worried that those two guys are coming after me if I'm bigger and quite frankly... He probably will slither away. Well, that's yeah, he'll great away. that Bill Murray, even as a bad guy, can still get away with things. And I think the last we hear of Big Earn in the movie is him getting some post-win questions from the sideline mm-hmm. reporters, right? And says, how do you feel, Big Earn, winning this under all that pressure? And his response was, of course there's a lot of pressure. I didn't want to lose to a guy with a rubber hand, for God's <laughs> sakes. The reporter says, does that mean you're against people with disabilities? Big Earn's like, I don't know. What do I care? I'm rich. I finally have enough money. I'm above the law. I can buy my way out of anything. He's just being swarmed by women as the camera pans off. Probably groping them. He's the slime ball. He's the charismatic asshole throughout the whole movie. And he ends up golden at the end of it all. Kind of like Mr. Potter in It's Wonderful Life. He doesn't get a comeuppance either. He's also a bad asshole. And by the way, Bill Murray apparently improvised most of his dialogue, which I guess he has in a lot of his movies, but it sounds like he really improvised on this. And the Fairly said, great, make it better. I wonder if they came up with Big Earn. It sounds like a Bill Murray thing. Haven't I told you to call me Ernie or Big Earn? (laughs) It's so good. So many of his lines are great, too. Was it the first time we see him again in 1996 after Roy shows up in Reno and they're at the buffet and Big Earn is walking through, arriving himself for the big tournament? He's being interviewed and somebody asks him about the latest paternity suit and his response is, oh, it's nonsense. She's a liar. I pulled out real early on that one. It's such a stupid throwaway line. But he should it, be a Supreme Court justice now, I think. Yeah, I mean, he probably... He'd fit right in there. <laughs> yeah, God. That and Big Earn's charity spots with the United Fund mm-hmm. or whatever the heck it's called. All the groping he's doing. <laughs> all the groping. And I saw little Billy and little Tommy and all their hot, hot moms <laughs> in need of help in every city that he stops in. I couldn't help myself. When you give a little, you get so much more. Oh, he's such a slime bag. But damn, Bill Murray's funny. The cast, by the way, could have been Michael Keaton in the Roy role. Chris Elliott, who is in the movie in that small role, the Indecent Proposal homage that they do at one yeah. point, which, yeah, he, of course, he, what he was in. He could have played Ishmael. And then Jim Carrey might have been Big Earn. That was the original casting options, or the choices, or the first choices, I guess you could say, for the Fairleys. Yeah. What they got was great, but those, well, maybe not so much Michael Keaton, but Elliot and Carrie, I think, would have been really good. Michael Keaton's a great actor, but one thing, he was known for comedy before Batman, wasn't he? So, yeah. yeah he was a comedian, straight up, before, well, that's true. before he became So why am Batman. I dismissing Michael Keaton? Maybe they would have been just as good or better a cast then. Big Earn, to me, is so iconic a character in this movie now that well, I... Can you imagine Jim Carrey with this chance? It, it would have been, been really great. It would have been great, but it would have been entirely different. Right? It would have been Cable Guy. It might have been the same it, year. He did Cable Guy that year, probably in lieu of this. Chris Farley was in the running for the Ishmael role as well. Oh, okay. But he was doing, I think, Black Sheep or something that year, so he couldn't do it. It's funny because Randy Quaid's supposed to be this young, naive bumpkin, but he's older by a mile than both Woody yeah. and especially Vanessa Angel. He looks young. In this movie, young he, enough. Would, he would have been in his 40s when he filmed this, mm-hmm. right? Stupid wig aside, he looked pretty young. Yeah, he doesn't look like he's 20, but he doesn't look like he's 50 either. We're not made to know how old he's supposed to be. He's young at heart, and he's naive, so he comes off as young. But he might be in his 30s, and he's just never left the farm, so he comes off really silly and young. But... Yeah, he leaves the farm to go bowling. Yes, that's right. Because his, his grandpappy took him bowling when he and was young. And they make it pretty clear in Witness, at least. Again, a movie, who knows if it's real. But that the Amish do go to town and do things. They don't do the things that we do necessarily. They certainly don't go to bars and bowling no. alleys normally, but they do have to buy things. I mean, they need $500,000, so... Yeah, they got to deal with the bank. They have sort of a normal life in some ways. It's just farmers who don't like electricity. Yeah, it, As it, long as it's plain. Remember, they had that line in <laughs> Witness. 
it would have been really strange to see Chris Elliott in that role, though, I think. As much as I like him, mostly, he's weird as the gambler, but he always mm. puts out that weird, kind of creepy vibe. I'm not a huge fan of his, actually. I think he would have been funny, but I think I would have also found him a little tiresome, especially since he'd be in the movie so much. Well, when he's in the, the movie thing. for a few scenes, it's not so bad. Not that he's a terrible actor. He's actually got a pretty big role in their next movie, There's Something About Mary. He's, what he is it, Booby, whatever the hell his name yeah. is? And he's fine. I'm not a huge fan of Ben Stiller. I never knew why I didn't like that movie the first time I saw it. And as years went on, I've liked Ben Stiller. I love him in Tropic Thunder. A funny movie across the board, especially, of course, Downey. But Ben Stiller in the lead is as funny as everybody else in that film. So maybe I like Ben Stiller more. But when I saw the movie the first time, I liked Diaz in that. I've said before that Diaz is hit or miss. She's hit in that. The Brett Favre thing is funny. And yeah. Matt Dillon is great in that movie. He is great. I think maybe Stiller's the problem. Well, his teeth are great in that movie, at least. Dylan has one of the greatest lines, though. But what is it? Handicapped kids or something like that? Oh, yeah. Those goofy bastards. <laughs> the way he says that line. Oh, my God. So you're God. not a Stiller guy? Not even in Meet no, the Parents? No, I'm saying that I've liked him in other things, but I don't think I liked him in that movie. Maybe that's what it was. Meet the Parents, though, yes. And Tropic Thunder, absolutely. And other things he's done, too. I think I enjoyed him in Zoolander as much as I've enjoyed him in anything. The and first. that's in small doses is okay, but it's yeah. not an hour and a half story. Yeah, Shouldn't be anyway. Now, one of the plot points we got to cover, of course, and a running theme for the whole movie, especially early on, but then at the very end it's mentioned, is his landlady, Lynn Shea, who in some ways steals the movie. She was in her 50s when she got this role. Her brother is Bob Shea, who ran New Line. Mm. And maybe that's part of the reason why we ever met her in the first place. It is a little nepotism, but she is a talented enough actress. She's the main character in the Insidious franchise now, and she's in her late 60s. So she's become a star of sorts in this big franchise, and she's retirement age. She's the main character in Insidious? Basically, well, the franchise, it has become. It was Patrick Wilson and Rose Byrne in the very first movie, but as the franchise has gone on, she's the main one in it, she including is, the prequel. She is truly disturbing in this movie, I have to say. Oh, yeah. And apparently she went in dressed like that and acted like that in the audition, and they didn't want her, didn't know who she was probably, and said, she's the one. That makes sense. The I mean, tongue. <laughs> oh, that tongue. Oh, Lord. It haunted Woody throughout the movie. I'm pretty sure it's going to haunt me for at least a few days until I can burn that out of my brain. So where is Roy getting the money when he says, I'll get your rent tomorrow, even though he's giving all the money that he made for being a pitch man to Ishmael and his family? You just blew my mind, right? <laughs> I mean, the running gag in the movie, too, is he just is constantly behind in the rent. She's just mm -hmm. always coming after him for rent, so he might just never intend to pay her that, right? He like, says he's going to pay her. He's also dumping on his booze, which I don't really buy, because that's always a bit of a cliche. Give it to her. Give it to somebody. Let them benefit from it. Just dump it down the sink. <laughs> Wait, is this more moral outrage at the wastefulness of dumping out all his Jim Beam Also, down the sink? it can happen, but alcoholics can't just decide to not be an alcoholic anymore, and that's the end of it, necessarily. Well, maybe he's going to try to. One thing I noticed about Woody, by the way, is the gut he has, the big fat gut, it's yeah. clearly just padding because when you see him in the scenes when he's got the fat gut as the movie plays out, he's otherwise Woody Harrelson sized. He's not big at all. He got a little weightier, I think, in The People vs. Larry Flint this same year again. Yeah. When he got nominated for an Oscar for that, actually. Or no, he didn't gain weight for that. Anyway, you could tell the gut he has is phony, so anyway. But he's a great character actor. We loved him. White Man Can't Jump. And he's pretty good in the lead role. But yeah, Michael Keaton might have been interesting too, huh? Hmm. As much as I'd like to see what it would look like, I don't know if I'd like him more. But I'm a big Woody fan. And I don't know if the prosthetic gut is supposed to look real or not. It certainly looks really fake, but like you said, the rest of him is so skinny. His face never gains any mm -hmm. weight. He's still a skinny guy. You can get away with that kind of stuff in comedies a lot more you can than Of course. You're not supposed to be like picture perfect. I was mostly just impressed with Randy Quaid at 40-whatever-it-was he was in this movie. He's up there on stage dancing in heels, and he's got a little <laughs> bit of like a six-pack going on there. The dude was in good shape. Good for you, Randy Quaid. <laughs> Let's see how old he is, actually. I think he is about 10 years da, older da, da, than Woody. Da, 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 da. Born in 1950, so he was in his mid-40s when they shot the movie. 
About yeah. 45 when they shot her, probably. There you go. Looking pretty good. Pretty, 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 pretty good. good. All right, so at the end, we always say, can you score out this movie? I say the guys are homely as all fuck, especially <laughs> with that hair. But Vanessa Angel and her frozen nipples are welcome on my TV screen and probably yours any day. And kudos to Lynn Shea's remarkable tongue talents. They oh, are great. God, that would kill any libido immediately, Ryan. Yeah, that's true. But just kudos <clears throat> to her for having those. Fair enough, okay. But the gross-out gags in this movie don't put you in a sexy mood at all. So it's probably best you don't try to get action during or after. No, I think you have a very narrow window with which to operate here. You have to come so, in late enough that you miss the Lin Shay stuff. Miss all that. Oh, Lord. <laughs> but you can't miss the freezer scene. Right? You cannot miss that scene. Whether it's Vanessa Angel or Randy Quaid, it doesn't matter. It's Quaid, more so. equally titillating. <laughs> no, really. And then you have to subsequently leave again because there's more gross-out gags to come. But if you come in for like that 15-minute stretch of movie... Then you're horny. You might have a chance, Ryan. <laughs> you might have a chance. Vanessa Angel is not only beautiful, but really cute, too. I don't buy that she would ever go with Roy. I can get her liking him, but she's not attracted to him. They don't put that across at all well enough, I don't think. No, but it's a movie. You see this in thousands of movies where people end up together who don't belong. And it's usually the woman who's a babe and the guy who's not... But she's also very likable in this film. I wouldn't say she's a great actress, but I think she's fine. And she really didn't do anything before or after this that anyone would really know. No big roles, at least. No, but it wasn't a big hit. Maybe that's why. One of the things that stood out to me when I talked about this dating itself a little bit is very much the fact that, not that I expect this movie to pass the Bechdel test necessarily, but there's no female characters in this movie at all of consequence. You've got the landlady who's got a few scenes that are just played for gags, like you talked about, right? There's some gross-out gags. And you've got Vanessa's character, who's just along for the ride for the most part, and she doesn't. She does stake them. Yeah, she does. And then she's a big part of their scams on the road, dressing up beautifully and then distracting those guys until a pretty funny gag with the farmers, oh, where the they farm. don't even notice until there's a sheep. That was both very funny and equally insulting to the Midwest. But yeah, that, that was a cute scene. But I mean, aside from the fact that they wrote her character as being necessary to stake them initially and then try to provide a little bit of support along the way. She doesn't do much. She doesn't have many lines. And what she does, I don't think she delivers very well. I don't agree. I think she's got a pretty big, important part in the movie, especially at that point. Well, when I think about Talladega Nights again, by contrast, another silly movie that is centered around two male characters. Right? Well, three, really. Riley, Farrell, Sorry, and, Ron, of yeah, course, Cohen. Sasha Baron Cohen as well. I should have included him. They're the center of the movie, but you still have Jane Lynch who is very funny and very present through the movie. And you also have Amy Adams. Amy Adams is wasted in that. I think you're actually getting this backwards. I would say Amy Adams, you think Amy Leslie Adams? Bibb, and Jane Lynch. And Jane Lynch isn't as important because she's not oh, in their, yeah. their okay. time frame. Did you mean you say Jane Lynch, you mean Leslie Bibb? Well, frankly, I just love Jane Lynch. I think she's fantastic. Okay, yeah. And she doesn't have a huge part. But when she's there, she steals the scene. Well, she always does that, though. That's Jane Lynch. And the same thing with Amy Adams. Amy Adams doesn't have a ton of screen time, but particularly towards the end of the movie, she has one or two scenes where she just delivers some big lines and really does a great job with it. As a whole, it's one of her early roles, and she doesn't have a Mm. ton to do. Leslie Bibb is always funny, but she doesn't have the same scene-stealing charisma when she's there. She's often just playing off of somebody else. Whereas when I think about this movie, the only female character that has more than two scenes is Vanessa Angel. And to me, she just never steals it. The delivery just isn't there. The comic timing isn't there. She's not terrible. And she's certainly a beautiful woman. Well, she's up against one of the better actors in Hollywood, certainly at this point, maybe not so much in 1996, Woody Harrelson, great character actor. Randy Quaid, for all of his faults now, 
He's very funny. He's been a great. He's a lot very of talented, and he did some great dramatic work later. And I can't remember the name of the movie he did. Was... He's in Brokeback Mountain. It's not a big role, but he's good in that. His big breakout was a dramatic role, mostly dramatic. It's a comedic movie here and there, but drama. The Last Detail in the '70s with Jack Nicholson. He got nominated for an Oscar for that. I'm trying to remember the name of the movie he did about five, six, seven years ago with Jay Barrichel when he's a dying Barrichel. Is it a Barrichel? Barrichel. Is it Barrichel? I've always heard Barrichel. Really. Well, if you want to know where Randy Quaid is, still up on my IMDb here. Dun, 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 dun. You can recognize it if I yeah, go yeah, find yeah. the Ice Harvest. That was oh man, he's barely acted since well because he's then been... the mid two thousands. We did Brokeback Mountain and the Ice Harvest. I think it was real time. Real oh, time. That sounds familiar. Let's see. He's Reuben. Ten years ago now. With That's Jay Barrichel, there he is. Yeah. With Jay Barrichel. <laughs> in any event, he was fantastic in that role—a a dramatic role. But the guy is really talented. And maybe you're right. Maybe it's just the fact that Vanessa Angel's playing off of two admittedly talented actors throughout the course of the movie that she just doesn't quite measure up. And so it doesn't look great by comparison. But in her own right, is probably fine. Maybe I'm being too hard on her. It's just... I thought she was fine. I have an opposite from you. I think the Talladega Nights women, not so much Jane Lynch, but the other two were pretty much wasted. And they're certainly great actors, especially now. Amy Adams wasn't known to be oh, no, yeah. great then. She was still so new, but she's one of the best... Maybe not ever, but another 10 or 15 years of good performances. They may put her up there with the Catherine Hepburns and the Kate Winslets and the Susan Sarandons of the world. Dumb and Dumber did what I think this movie was trying to do, but just did it better from start to finish. Another road movie. Another road movie. Another incredibly stupid movie, but it was better written. It had two great comedic actors. One of whom we didn't really know was a comedic actor at the time. I don't think not like that. Jeff Daniels. Jeff Daniels. Yeah, I know. And Carrie was still new on the scene. Oh, exactly. They it mean, was one of the great endings in any movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> you idiots! The town is back that way! <laughs> Carrie apparently insisted that that was the way the movie ended, and it was kind of like the Brad Pitt thing in Seven. Didn't have that kind of clout that Pitt did, but Pitt apparently wasn't going to make Seven if they changed it. I think it was in his contract that the ending was the ending, and Dumb and Dumber, Carrie probably didn't have that kind of clout, but it's the same thing. I don't want to be in this movie if it's not going to end that way. In both cases, it makes perfect sense. You don't want Seven to suddenly have a happy ending where you know everything works out, and you don't want... Lloyd and Harry to suddenly stumble into their paradise. This is who they are. They can't get on that bus. They're fuck-ups, right? Yeah. They've learned nothing. They've learned nothing, absolutely. This whole adventure has been for naught. Maybe that's where this differs. This does not have... This yeah, everything's different. wrapped up, and Roy learns, and Ishmael learns. Right. It True. follows all those tropes. It doesn't have the belief in itself to really follow through with a memorable story arc. But something well, Mary also works out well because Ben Stiller's character gets the girl. Yeah, that's true. And but everyone else gets their comeuppance or what have you. That's also not as good a movie as Dumb and Dumber. I agree. I don't like something about Mary as much as a lot of other people do. It's on the AFI's comedies list. I think it's in the high 30s or 40s or something like that. I don't know if I'd put Dumb and Dumber on that list, but if I had to choose between those two, definitely Dumb and Dumber is funnier. Agreed. And it's not even close to me. I'm not so sure most people agree with that, though. Really? I think in general, especially with critics, for example, they prefer something about Mary. I could spend way too much time just quoting scene after scene from Dumb and Dumber with the lines and the delivery and the way it's played. And I can't do that with something about Mary. There's maybe three scenes from that movie that are iconic for their silly sight gags that I could quote. And that's about it. Mm. By the way, I mentioned that the Fairleys have a lot of failures movies that people haven't liked the same way that they did the movies in the 90s. So the Fairleys have only been fairly successful in their career, right? Yeah, they keep making movies at least. They made that Three (laughs) Stooges movie a couple years ago. But Peter directed Green Book, which is out, if not now, then very soon. It was at the Toronto International Film Festival. And that's Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali, and people were raving about it. I think it even won the Audience Award or one of the big awards oh. at TIFF. So Peter, by himself, Bobby's not even involved at all that I could see as a producer or anything, 
Peter directed that, and people are loving it. I'm not saying he's going to win awards, be nominated for any awards, but wouldn't that be something if they don't even do a movie together that gets that kind of critical praise? He takes a dramatic turn and suddenly yeah. is a star again. You mentioned Airplane earlier, so that's the Zucker brothers and Jim Abrams. Jerry Zucker directed Ghost, one of the comedy guys, does this serious movie, mostly serious, and then gets rewarded. So our next movie, the 11th one of this series, in two weeks, will be a card movie. So we've only done one or is it two genres twice. We did baseball twice, but we haven't done cards yet. And it's Rounders, one of my very favorites. And that movie is 20 years old. We haven't done anything from 1998, so it's the first 20-year-old movie that we've covered. You and I, Bev, have covered a lot of movies that have eights and threes in them this year for the anniversaries. Oh, fair enough. You're going to have to really rein me in for this one, Ryan, because I'm going to get... I can't rein myself I'm going to get way too dorky. Hanging around, hanging around. <laughs> Pay that man his money. <laughs> oh, I do a terrible Russian accent. Good Lord. We're going to butcher it, but it's going to be a lot of fun. I love Rounders. I've seen it so many times. It has so many grievous flaws in it, but it's one of those things that for all of its flaws, it just works. And maybe, again, it's the performances. Damon's really good, and it's one of my favorite ever voiceovers. And I also like the fact that we're getting progressively lazier in the nature of the sports we're covering. What did we do before Major League? Was that any given Sunday? I think so. So, so from football to baseball to bowling to cards. <laughs> more and more sedate. <laughs> How do we get less active from cards? Well, I'm looking through the options Not list. Not even darts works. <laughs> Good Lord. I'm looking through what I've got on my computer as options we have to do for movies, and I don't think we have that many more genres we can cover anymore. There are some more. We have to save at least one movie for the Olympics whenever they happen again, and I won't say what that movie is just now. But baseball and football, there's so many options. We'll be doing an awful lot of those as the months go on here. So I am at MovieFiend51 on Twitter, TopNunderProject.com, for all the podcasts that I've ever done with Bev or with Chris. It's 275 or even more than that now. I should actually know that number. I don't have it on me right now. You can't contact us, man. He does not want to be contacted. Leave him the fuck alone. This is why I'm so surprised you managed to keep contacting me to bring me back episode after episode, Ryan. I'm trying to go dark. I have your phone number. Damn it. These people do not. Fair enough. Take your easy, dudes. I know that you will. There's a beverage here, man. (laughs) 